Hello everybody, you're listening to Fireside with Founders, the podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at some of the coolest startups out there and stories about their amazing founders. So all you need to do now is sit back, relax and enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Fireside with Founders. I'm your host Rupert McSheehy and I have the uh, the pleasure of Charlie Wells who's CEO and co-founder of Hello Self today. Hey Charlie. Hey Rupert, thanks for having me. No, thank you very much for coming on. I know you're a busy man, so thank you for taking time out of your schedule today to, to talk a bit more about, about you and the business and, and everything like that. So uh, appreciate it. No problem at all. I'm excited to be here. Good. We'll, 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 um, we'll get to that stuff later. But the first bit, as I mentioned to you, is that we do a quick fire round, some simple sort of yes or no answers. So let's see I'm, where we go. Ready, hit one. me. Good. Okay. First number question number one, very important, this one, cats or dogs? Dogs. Ah, good. You got, got a dog? 100%. Not even, no, actually, I'd love one, but uh, I live in the city and I run a tech company, so I have no time to go walking. <laughs> Soon. You, all, all good tech companies can have a dog in the, the office these days, can't you? We do have a lot of dogs in the office. So, well, we did pre-COVID. Yeah, pre-COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so number, number two, investor or founder? Founder. Okay. Running or cycling? Oh, running. Burger or salad? Salad. Science or tech? Oh, science every day. Okay. And that concludes. Wasn't so hard. No, that was fun. I thought you, you got to that pretty quickly. There was no hesitation in any of those. Yeah, well, okay. I, was, I was worried you were going to ask for explanations, but one word answers, you know, fast no, and efficient. No, no need for an explanation. So, so look, that's a bit of a warm up and that gives a little bit of an insight into perhaps you and, uh, and some of the things uh, in your background. But if you could perhaps introduce yourself in a, a slightly more succinct manner, uh, talking a bit more about sort of where, where you come from, I suppose, starting off as, you know, your, your sort of early career with, with the guys at Just Giving and then moving forward. Yeah, well, I guess it links to science beforehand because I go way back. I, I'm not a technologist. I'm not a developer. I, I was a scientist by training. So um, I was a neurobiologist and a virologist a, a long time ago. Um, so I, I was fascinated by biology. I, I really like wet science. I was kind of interested in, in how to kind of, I was a geneticist and wanted to build viruses and all sorts of fun things. Um, and then left Don't uni. build viruses. That's not what we want in, uh, in today's it, world. We've got enough yeah, of those. Well, I, I built a very virulent virus in 1999. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, it makes the world academically rather interesting for me at the moment, if not slightly horrifying. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then I was going to go and do a PhD um, in virology, um, but um, building viruses is quite lonely, right? You sit in a lab and uh, it's sort of airtight and all sorts of things. Um, and so I didn't actually love the work. I was intellectually interested in it, but didn't love the day-to-day of it. So um, flipped and uh, tr- didn't do my PhD, tried to be David Attenborough for a year. Thought I could be a wonderful natural history documentary maker. Good. Um, and as you can see, I failed at that miserably. Um, uh, Sir David is still in, in that throne. And, uh, and so I ended up paying for my life living in London by working in an advertising agency called Ogilvy & Mather, um, where I spent five years doing healthcare marketing, um, which I'd highly recommend for anyone who's w- wondering what they should do in life. Everyone always comes out of uni and tries to be a consultant or something, but working in that agency, you, you learn 
uh, lots about creativity, but most importantly about how to communicate succinctly, which was extremely useful um, when trying to take complex science and explain it to people. It's quite um, a different path, isn't it? Then, so coming from, like you say, from a scientific background, there's not many people that go and work in a you know, marketing or ad agency no and in these days i mean this was early 2000s so um i was literally the only one who had a science degree so hence they gave me all the uh, healthcare um, products because <laughs> no one else wanted to read a science paper yeah. but um, i loved it um and then i set up my first business in 2006 which was a social media business which i sold in 2010 to um sapient nitro um and i've then found myself at 30 years old as a director of a 5,000 person tech consulting agency which was a yeah, a really exciting experience. You know, we we won all of the Adland Awards in the world, Cannes Gold Lions, and you know, Eurobest Awards. So my job was to wear a black tie and accept awards and speak to thousands of people at events. It was very exciting, um, and grew a team from you know ten odd people to three hundred odd people in six months. It was really exciting scale up time, um, and then. Um, and then I had my kind of first exciting life pivot, which I guess leads us to hello self a little bit. Do you want me to go into that now or hold it well, off for later? Yeah, let, I guess let's, let's yeah, let, why not? Let's talk about it whilst you're there. Well, uh, it was the uh, 4th of December, um, 2011. Um, I was running a race dressed as Santa Claus um, um, in Battersea Park, I think it was. Um, one of those kind of Santa runs, 5Ks. And I decided I was going to try and win it, which is a very foolish thing to do. So um, I, I don't recommend it. And um, the next thing I know, I'd finished the race and um, I had a category five brain hemorrhage. I kind of collapsed, fell into a coma. Um, and so kicked off a chain of extraordinary events that, uh, that led to me possibly being the luckiest person alive. Um, there's, a, there's a whole after dinner speech I give. If you want to do a full hour and a half podcast, I'll tell you all the amazing medical things that happened to me in the next 10 minutes. But um but that next 10 minutes was kind of fairly life or death. But an hour later, I was at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, which is in Queen Square, um, in a coma and not likely to wake up. Um, so having had an extremely successful 20s, um, my 30s started off in a, you know, with a rather extreme uh, life pivot, I guess. I say the least, that is very extreme. Uh, yeah. and not to be recommended. Yeah. I, I do have a question, though. How did you get on in the race? Came third. Actually, I came fourth. I was, um, I was, I was second when I lost my sight, and then it came back, and then I came fourth, which I was very, very annoyed about. But I did finish the line, and then I was walking home when I collapsed. I'm amazed. So I still not won a race. Absolutely amazed. Um, yeah, they, they, I was young those days. It was much easier. Yeah, <laughs> dressed as Santa, no less as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd actually just finished November, right? So I'd just done uh, another charity fundraiser. So I had a huge moustache as well, which was an, another kind of word of warning because when you kind of obviously collapse and you're in the hospital for the next couple of months, I had this enormous kind of handlebar moustache in the hospital, which made me look massively ridiculous while lying um, in a bed. So I'd, I'd, always... I'd imagine... They, they were slightly confused as you sort of came in with this huge handlebar moustache dressed as Father Christmas. They were, oh, God, not another one. Yeah, it's, okay. it's, yeah it's obviously Saturday. Yeah. Um, okay, wow. So, and how long were you in a coma for? Um, actually, they weren't sure how long it would take for me to wake up, but um, in the National, they kind of known me as the boy who lived. And I woke up about after 24 hours, just, just over 24 hours. Um, and then um, I was in intensive care for about another week um, and then moved into 
HDU and then onto the ward. Um, and it was on the ward that they started trying to work out what had happened and, and where the bleed had come from. And that's when they started you know, scanning your brain and looking for um, bleeds. Um, and most of the time your hemorrhages happen in your sort of uh, on the edge of your brain in your uh, capillaries. But um, they actually found that the rip for me was in my um, left, um, the artery going to my left visual cortex, which is quite a rare place to have a, a hemorrhage. And hence, it was such a big bleed. Um, and so now they had the kind of interesting challenge of fixing it, which involved putting a car aerial into my blood veins through my groin, actually, and driving up to my brain and gluing my brain shut from the inside. So it was um, it was quite an experience, um, which was... Uh, but that was successful. And, and then I was just about recovering and getting out of the hospital. Wow. And you live to tell the tale. So, so that obviously is quite a life-changing event in anyone's book, ultimately. So what did that spark for you then to, to then sort of lead further into your life, having had all of the success you'd had in the tw- your 20s to now going into your 30s, having this huge event? Where, where does it go from here? Yeah, so... Um... It, it, it was a huge uh, life experience, I guess you'd call it. But once I'd kind of woken up and I'd kind of survived, um, I kind of learned two really important things from my kind of hospital experience. Um, so the first was, as you said, I'd had like a, a successful and very fun and entertaining 20s, but it had been sort of almost utterly pointless. So um, I'd, I'd, like, I'd done lots of stuff and I'd looked at problems that were in front of me and I'd enjoyed solving those problems but I'd never really thought what are the problems I should waste my time and energy on and so um, I uh, I looked back at my 20s thinking gosh I had so much energy and I was so well and I wasted it on pointless problems so I decided that if I got through my brain hemorrhage I would become a ruthless investor in energy um, and I would only invest my energy in three things and I've honored this pledge to myself today the first is that I'd invest a third of my energy in keeping myself happy and healthy. You cannot be good for anyone else unless you're a strong foundation and a strong platform. Um, and this is coming from a man who spent his 31st birthday being sponged bath by his wife and his mother, which is never something you want to be doing. Um, so, you know, I really, you, you really need to be good for other people and you know, they can going to give back. So one third on keeping yourself happy and healthy. One third of your energy on the relationships that matter to you. And so I used to be a kind of social butterfly. I had loads and loads and loads of people that I knew, um, but I probably ignored the people that I counted as close friends and more than I should. So I spend more energy trying to keep in touch with the people I love. And then a third of my energy doing something world-changing. So fun got cut. Um, so I'm probably not the most fun person anymore, but um, I'm pretty focused on impact and scale of impact and how can we change the lives of tens of millions of people, which is how I defined a world-changing organization. Okay. And uh, so I'm pretty kind of ruthless on that energy and focus. So that's the first thing I learned. And the second thing I learned was, um, I call it the power of 1%. So the doctors stopped me dying, right? They glued up my brain and did all sorts of amazing wonderful things but the um but you know they then say congratulations you're not dead and they send you out of hospital and they tell you how to sign onto the doll and all those other things and i left hospital at eight and a half stone unable to see um i could walk about five or six meters you know i was not in a great and i'm six foot one by the way so you like um i should wow. not have been eight and a half stone yeah um and so you know i wasn't the greatest specimen um of, of mankind and um, and so um and and they're delighted because you're not dead and then all of your family are delighted because you're not dead and, and you're like oh this is this is dreadful like what's the rest of my life going to be like and then you meet a neuro recovery team 
and they saved my life effectively. So I worked with um, uh, well, them, my wife and my mother, um, and they. I worked with them to work out how do I um, measure something. So they said, find something, measure it, and try and improve it by one percent every day. Not for the next month, not for the next year, not for, the, but for the, at least the next five years, and ideally for the rest of your life. So I rebuilt my cognition. I rebuilt my vision, doing kids, kids puzzles, and then ten thousand piece jigsaw puzzles. I rebuilt my mobility. I kind of walked across the room and then started jogging again. Then ran, then ran marathons, then ran ultra marathons, then ran hundred kilometer marathons, um, ultra marathons. And, and I suddenly realised that, and that if we put our mind to it, we can be whoever we want to be. This, you know, if we commit to trying to be 1% better at something, you can become extraordinary at anything. And this thing in our heads, this kind of fixed brain is a really kind of malleable um, neuroplastic thing that allows us to change who we are, change how we feel about things. And, um, and then, so I started to realize how much potential we have in our heads and how much potential we waste um, by not, um, not being focused enough on trying to be our best self or, or make ourselves better every day. That's, so they were the two massive learnings I had from the hospital. That's, that's um, pretty ironic. So in, in our office, uh, we have a, a framed photograph of something that says, do something 1% better than yesterday. And, and I genuinely believe that it's just those incremental, slight sort of changes of, of bettering oneself that can make all the difference and taking those sort of baby steps. So it's really interesting to hear that from... Uh, people in uh, you know, neuroscience uh, are sort of taking that approach to say, actually, that's how you can actually achieve things. Yeah, and, and it, it's just super important for sort of every founder and, and startup world is, you know, how, what are you trying to optimize every day while at the same time trying to make leaps? And so you'll only make the leaps if you get into the rhythm of 1% gains every day. Um, it's very difficult to make leaps when you're not in that kind of improvement mindset. Absolutely. I think if you look at some of the top athletes, it's all about marginal gains for those guys, you know, talk about runners, cyclists, and you know, even things like the, the, the materials that their shirts are made from, etc. It's just those small, small things that can make the difference. So uh, but the small stuff. Absolutely. And so, so obviously, so then you're going through this, this recovery. And where does that lead you? How long, how long does it take? You know, and when do you, when do you sort of get out of this oh, there was, you're never out right so um, yeah. I guess I, I had sort of migraine head pain for three years something like that and um, so I was injecting painkillers for about a year and a bit um, and then I basically decided I wasn't going to do painkillers anymore and so got into kind of pain management techniques and then um, I went back to work after about just under a year um, and um, and then I left my job because it no longer aligned with being world changing, and um, and I was going to start this business. Um, but it's very different then. It was kind of a neuropsychometrics business that was trying to help people measure themselves. Um, but I was really ill. Um, and my advice to any founder who's thinking about it out there is to you know, make sure you have the energy in yourself to start a business because it's hard. Um, and so I decided I didn't have my, the energy then. I was still not that well, and and I was lucky and blessed enough to meet um well she's now dame zarine i should probably call her but there was zarine and amory who are the, the founders of just giving and um and they very kindly uh, invited me to come and join their management team to be their cmo which was a big risk by them really if you're looking back at it i wasn't you know on on paper i probably wasn't the most obvious candidate um but it was amazing it was a, a, an equally well a sort of life-changing experience for me it taught me all about how to run a for profit for good business like i'd always kind of thought that 
businesses made money doing something and then could do some pro bono work for the good on the side. Whereas the idea of putting like good at the core of everything you do and the mission before sort of money um, and the money kind of serving the mission was really new to me. I learned lots about B Corps. I learned about creating interesting kind of cultures. Um, and, you know, I, I loved what we were doing. I loved the fact that we were sort of you know, redistributing wealth through generosity and we were trying to, you know, and we were en en enabling people to give and feel the joy of giving and see their impact on how and how, how, and how and what it could have on our people's lives. And then it was a really fulfilling place to work. Um, and it was exactly what I needed at the time. And I, I drank the Kool-Aid and I believed it, but it was an amazing experience being so close to two really quite brilliant people. I mean, massive, am I allowed to say pains in my ass um, on the, on the podcast? You can say whatever you like. Yeah. Like, you know, they weren't the easiest people to work with every day, but, um, but they were brilliant. And, uh, and I, um, you know, I guzzled every piece of knowledge that they could possibly share with me. I think, dare I say, a lot of the the leading founders of businesses aren't the easiest people <laughs> to work with, are they? Let's be honest. No, it's good. Like, uh, like they had a vision and 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 they they articulated it well. And they shared it. It was a very kind of democratized vision. Like they weren't kind of greedy with it. A lot of founders are very much like I have to be the vision holder, but they were they were very good listeners as well as um, leaders. Um, and then obviously just giving um, was sold in what 2018 yep. I think the world's largest B Corp sale at the time and so that then um, let me go and find my own adventure which is where kind of hello self restarted um, which was fantastic nice and before before that as well you uh, got involved in some early stage angel investing as well um, so so talk to me about that what was the decision that, that drove you to to get behind some of these companies that you invested in in. Yeah, so like I, I knew I wanted to be world changing, right? Um, and I didn't have um, a clear idea of what business I wanted to do. So I took a very luxurious six months to investigate problem spaces. And when you investigate problem spaces, I was re I was really interested in the problems of brain technology, right? I was interested in brains for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, so I looked at brain technology in the uh, in the um, hardware space, so brain-computer interfaces, all that kind of space, which was very interesting. Um, some amazing technology coming out, but very early, and quite a long way away from um, being in market. Um, I then looked at it in the health tech space, um, as in how it can serve sort of brain imaging as sort of diagnosis tools, et cetera. Um, and then I looked at it in a kind of consumer category, as in like the, you know, at the time I met with the founders of Headspace and all these sorts of, kind of calm, et cetera, how people were using kind of consumer applications. And of course, during that journey, I started meeting really amazing organizations. Um, and so with the very small amount of their change I had, I started kind of angel investing and advising those businesses, which was like, amazing. I, and it was one of those, it was almost slightly uh, fraudulent, it's the wrong word, but it's kind of a bit of a con because I was obviously getting a huge amount in, in, in all, anyone who's an advisor is basically gets something back from the advice that they give as well because <laughs> you learn stuff about other companies. So I was learning lots about the space, but I was getting to advise these organizations. Um, and so I had the pleasure of like investing in lots of neurotech companies um, that are coming up in the UK, lots of um, uh, companies that are looking at longevity and kind of brain health, um, as well as some other kind of um, impact-driven companies that are looking at kind of changing the lifestyles of people. So the, the kind of theme, I guess, from my investment thesis is how can I put uh, small amounts of resource to making large amounts of impact, which was fun. Nice, but very good. It wasn't for me. I could never be an investor long-term. 
Like some people love it. Some people, I'm a, I'm a get my hands dirty kind of person. Like I have to, I want to be in a problem solving problems. And like, I know investors say that they're really close to the problem, but ultimately they're the, they're supporting a, a founder who's actually trying to solve the problem. And so um, I would always, I, I much prefer being in it as an operator rather than an investor. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to ask why, why the, the sort of the, the thought process of, of, being a founder over an investor and, and that sums it up quite nicely then it's just being able to roll up your sleeves and get get beneath the weeds ultimately yeah get stuff done like um and it's all it's it's very fulfilling feeling like you do something and see something change um and i'm, I'm sure there are lots of fitting things in money but um also i, I Let's be frank, I'm not rich enough to be an investor long term either. So um, you, you need quite a lot of money to follow these deals. It's quite a, it's quite a long game, the VC or angel world. Uh, absolutely. And so, so look, that, that segues and leads us quite nicely into where we are now. So 2018, you then founded Hello Self as it is now or in some way, shape or form. So, so tell us a bit more about Hello Self, the business and, and what you guys do and what problem you're solving? Yeah, so, so as, as you've heard from my answer, we were super interested in um, founding an organization which was about getting yourself better, helping you get yourself better, and then helping get every self better. So we kind of have this kind of mission. You, know, you were talking about your wall. Our kind of, sort of mission statement is yourself better, every self better. And the idea was that in theory, everyone you know, can kind of improve themselves in some way. And if they get into that self-improvement philosophy, then they can help others improve themselves. Um, and so that was the kind of idea that we started playing with and how could we serve self-improvement? And um, that's when I got the rest of the management team together. Like it's really important to kind of marshal people behind your um, behind your dream. Um, and I met with Andy and Mike who um, operations and technology um and and then um, most probably most importantly Romina Dr Romina Taylor who is our chief clinical officer and she introduced me to the world of clinical psychology which I didn't actually know that much about but you know in it I stumbled across a fascinating model that was really rounded it really kind of un- explores all aspects of sort of self um and psychology um, and uh and so we decided that we could start focusing on a kind of how can we use a clinical psychology model to help people um, be their best selves more often. Um, and so, you know, we were at the time, no one thought you could really create a business in sort of mental health or self-improvement. It was a kind of very sort of untrendy space. Um, and so we assumed that um, we could you know, spend forever dreaming about what the future could be. So we actually came up with a really pretentious 15-year strategy, which, wow. um, yeah, exactly, which started off with becoming the world's most trusted um, brand for personalized psychological advice. So we were going to find out ways that I could understand, you know, you, Rupert, and um, and understand you on a really kind of your psychology on a very kind of detailed way and give you the advice that would help you be the self you wanted to be, hence the yourself better. Yeah. Um, and so hence we looked at sort of therapy as a service, kind of life coaching um, sports psychology as a kind of coaching model. And we realized that all of these models are basically clinical psychology models. Like we, it doesn't matter whether you're ill and want to get better or whether you're doing really well and want to excel, like we can apply the same psychological principles to people. So we thought, okay, great. We'll create a product that allows us to connect psychologists and um, and people in a synchronous and asynchronous way and give people the advice they need um, in, in the most efficient and effective way. So we're all about high service and high outcome. That was what we were all about. 
the second phase of our strategy was to change psychology, right? We wanted to change psychology into a data science. Um, like psychology is amazing. It's fascinating, but it's a young science and it's really difficult to measure. Mm. But we've got this explosion of data coming out from you know, everything, biometrics to brain imaging that's becoming so much more accessible. Um, and so, you know, self is a really complicated sort of pattern recognition data science problem. And so we were like, let's change psychology into the science of self, which is what we call it. Um, and then we were going to use that science of self to generate, um, well, effectively AI driven um, self improvement advice. So we call it the AI life coach, it's called project happy, the hello self AI psychology engine. Um, and then we can use that, um, that platform to both improve therapy with the therapists to try and give them kind of helps and prompts, but also to keep people well or prevent people getting unwell in the first place. Um, yeah. And and then last but not least, in the super future, and this is where we get into the dream estate, we believe we're I don't know, 15 years away from a world of brain-computer interfaces where you and I, Rupert, won't need to, a Zoom call to do our podcast. We can just plug our brains straight into the internet um, and think to each other. And, and in that world, I mean, it's terrifying and exciting in equal measure, um, but it it's kind of interesting for two questions. Like the first big question of once you've plugged yourself in, and you're downloading stuff to your head, you know, who am I becomes a really interesting question um, that has a lot more meaning. And, um, and secondly, and possibly even more interestingly, like who decides who I am is an interesting point. So, um, and so in that super future, we don't believe that yourself should be nudged or influenced by a brain-based app platform, um, which is ad-funded by MIP. <laughs> insert large named tech company here. Yeah. Um, and we don't believe that that world should be uh, decided by governments necessarily. Um, we happen to live in a very potentially uh, liberal democracy. Um, but if you look around the world, you don't necessarily want all governments to decide um, who their people are um, psychologically. And so really, we believe that you should decide you are we, we think you should de design yourself um and you, that should be affected by the society and the community with which you live and that you exist um so there are obviously some limits to that um and so in that future you will give this service your secrets you know you'll you'll explain all your hopes and dreams to this service you'll give it some money you'll give it a lot of trust and in exchange it will give you advice it will give you some advice on how you can become the person you want to become and it's up to you to decide whether you take that advice or not. And, um, and so that's how we see the kind of self economy, the digital self economy evolving. And, and we want to be the trusted brand in that space. And if you look at the analogy of that value exchange relationship today, it's a therapist, right? You know, you give your therapist your secrets, you give it them trust, you give them money and in exchange, they give you advice. And, and so hence we've started off creating the world's, well, at the moment, the UK's most trusted, um, online therapy service wow that as you say that's it's a really exciting but it also scares the life out of me i've got um <laughs> images of uh of keanu reeves from the matrix with his head plugged into to things uh but, yeah but there's some amazing stuff i mean i mean if you're interested i mean check out like the kernels of this world which is brian johnson's company in in the us they've got some amazing kind of imaging information and then if you want the kind of a uk equivalent like um co-mind which asterisk i am an investor in so um to, to declare you know th you know they're a small team in the uk that have done some extraordinary breakthrough work in the brain imaging both read and write space so it's it's kind of interesting it, it's it's not impossible it's just very early 
Yeah. And I think that really differentiates you because it's really, it's very interesting to say uh, when you first started, it wasn't a sort of a cool place to be and no one believed in the value of you know, helping people's mental health where now it is super important eh? and everyone realizes the importance of it. And there's all sorts of businesses springing up um, that are trying to solve the problem, but you're doing it in a very different way. And even from what I see now, as you're saying, looking at prevention rather than just cure, that's uh, a differentiator comparatively to a lot of your competitors out there. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there, as you said, it's been, especially since the sort of pandemic hit, you know, the, you know, we, we were very unusual to be an online kind of therapy provider before the pandemic. And now obviously overnight, the majority of therapy happens on Zoom. Um, and there are, as you said, lots of different services that are launching all the time um, and a lot more investor interest. And that has you know, huge kind of pros that like it's a problem that deserves to be solved. And I'm really super happy that there are lots of people trying to solve it. Um, but it also means that, you know, um, that there's kind of comp- competition for um, idea space. And sometimes the speed cannot be good for the, the user. Um, and so like I, I constantly advocate people who are in the mental health space that you know, the, te- the technology world likes to move fast and break things. The last thing that mental health needs is more breaking things. It's not particularly well set up ecosystem. And so um, there's a bit of a, a kind of challenge in being a, a kind of men- any health tech startup, which is ultimately that you, you need to maybe go 5% slower than you'd really like, but just make sure that you're 10% better um, than you think you could ever be so always strive for kind of quality hence you know we talk about service and outcome as as important to us as impact so impact is the number of members we're serving and that's our growth metric i guess um call them weekly active members yeah. um and then um and then obviously but most importantly we, we will not uh, we will not dro- drop below a, a service threshold and we will not drop below the ability to measure outcomes because if we're not actually measurably demonstrating self-improvement um to people's lives then we are just one of those other mental health apps out there that doesn't have any evidence or proof points, um, which, and there are lots of those. I was going to say, it sounds like it's a pretty tricky balance because as you rightly point out, you know, most tech companies move hard, fast, break, break fast, you know, fail fast and, and learn, but you don't really have the opportunity to do that as, as much when you're talking about people's mental health, you know, you can't, can't sort of break that down. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there are lots of services out there that will say, you know, we're, we're doing mental health services, but we'll only help the people who are in this one little segment that are very low risk. But, um, you know, you never really know how someone needs to be helped. And if you genuinely believed in your, you know, yourself better, every self better, you need to be prepared for someone to walk in saying, I feel amazing. And I want to, you know, I want to improve in this way and become this sort of hyper performance person. And then at the other time, you've got someone coming in who's, you know, really in a very, difficult and dark place um, and you need to be able to understand how do you serve these people equally and as importantly whilst managing you know all of those risks and responsibilities that you have um, and the only way you can do that is by kind of creating a great culture of serving the person in front of you right it's got to all be about impact of that person's life it's got to be their outcome their service levels you can't look at it as a massive cohort you have to look at it as a cohort of one and you mentioned earlier, obviously, there's been some some you know, more interest in terms of investment within the the space. And so you guys have gone from seed investment to earlier this year raising for your Series A. Um, 
what were the the sort of the the challenges between those from going from a business that was sort of raising for, for seed money then going into a series a raise you know were they were they tricky in equal measure or diff- any particular differences that you noticed that people might be able to to sort of pick out learns from um yeah so i mean i was there's a huge amount of luck in fundraising let's be really honest here so there's a huge dollop of luck um, and i was very lucky on both times so the um, for my seed, you know, I, I believe you only want to go to people for money if you don't need their money, right? So my first piece of advice is always have a plan that doesn't involve money um, and then always present your fundraising plan as your go faster plan um, because that, that means that you, you don't, you're not begging for money to survive. You're, you're asking for money to go faster and that's a really big psychological difference in any meeting. And I was lucky enough in my first seed that, you know, um, I knew some relatively wealthy people because they just exited from just giving. And so a lot of that, um, that my, my biggest angel was the largest um, shareholder of just giving. So, um, and, you know, I put, I had some spare change and then um, all of the founding team at just giving um, invested. So I had an initial kind of pot, which meant it was much easier to go out to market to raise slightly more because you already had some momentum. The um, the A was completely different as an experience for me because um, I was taking money from people I didn't know, and and I re- and I suddenly realised that I was never going to be able to do that, and I realised that really early, um, mainly because I'm really picky on who I want to want to work with, and so I think all founders. This is my tip for founders: all founders should always be fundraising. Um, people leave it way too late. Um, and you shouldn't be fundraising, working out who do I want to invest in my company. You should be interviewing people as do I want this person on my board? Because ultimately, if you spend, what is it between average rounds, 18 months, two years, if you spend that time every week or two meeting some interesting people in the, in the funding space um, and working out you know, who would be really good for our board, who, who will give me great advice, who, who can I trust, who can sit on the table. When you come to fundraising, you can then knock on their door and say, I need this money. I think you're brilliant. You think we're brilliant. We get along well. Um, let's have a conversation. And it's so much easier to do that fundraising rather than going on like these kind of fundraising roadshows and meeting lots of strangers and trying to work out who's the best money to take from. So um, it's exhausting. It's hard work. And you kind of have to meet lots of people that you decide that you don't want to take money from. But I've not regretted a single minute of the time I've spent networking in my entire life. Um, so I think it's always worthwhile for founders to get out there and meet people. Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest learns that I've uh, I've come to to hear over the course of doing this this podcast, whereby most people will say you've just got to knock on a lot of doors when you're fundraising and speak to a lot of people. And I think that's that's a really interesting way of putting it, saying who do I want on my board as as opposed to who do I want to invest, you know, looking at them as as real members of the team. Yeah, exactly. And 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 you and you might choose slightly different people because you you, you actually it ends up being choosing the person rather than choosing the organization and then you have to go to make sure that person's going to hang around and stay there and all that kind of stuff but um um yeah i mean but we you know as i said we were extremely lucky because we were well set up and founded and then the the market dynamics changed a lot for us because we went from a very un in unhot sector i guess you could call it to a much hotter one when we ended up doing our series a nice and i suppose then uh, in terms of 
where you guys go and I can see the the long-term vision as you mentioned as to you know where where we are 15 year in 15 years sort of plugging ourselves in and uh, and getting therapy that way but wh- where do you see the business over the next couple of years what, what are we going to see from from hello self over the next next 24 months yeah so um so we interestingly we, I, I purposely try not to plan on a kind of calendar but we plan on milestones and horizons um and so like milestones are like you know how do we you know hit certain product goals or, or uh, metric goals and then horizons are like different kind of I guess eras of thinking of the business and so at the moment we're very much in the kind of horizon one which is to be that kind of most trusted provider of personalized psychological advice and um, you know you will see a lot more um, uh, us serving a lot more members on the kind of treatment side in the UK. So we're doing a lot more with sort of medical referrers, um, insurers, um, employers, as well as direct to consumer. So we've got a B2C and a B2B2C um, kind of model. And that seems to be going very well for us. Um, and so we're going to see a lot more growth on that Friday. And we'll also see um, a lot more on us from the kind of coaching front and the kind of ongoing kind of self-improvement and self-maintenance front. So we're kind of launching more, kind of services that are more ongoing post-treatment and post-coaching. That's probably the next year and a bit. Um, there's a big debate about when we leave this island. Um, so um, uh, in the original plan, we were going to be here for a couple of good couple of years before we started venturing overseas. But um, you know, the mission and the need is so big. And the fact that there is more resources um, flowing into the sector means that we might be able to help more people faster. So, you know, as a mission organization, you can't ignore that opportunity. Um, so we're looking at new markets. Um, and then the probably the biggest sort of change you'll see um, in the next year or two is we've been working on, as I said, Project Happy and our kind of AI for a, a year and a half. And we, we've got some early stuff in there, which is really helping us operate our business. But it's kind of, it's not yet, um, radically improving the member experience um, um, but I really think that it, it should start doing that you know, by kind of Christmas Easter sort of time so that will be um, really exciting when we can actually show that the AI supporting a therapist is delivering considerably better outcomes we, we already benchmark ourselves and we already delivered the best outcomes that we've seen so like we have more effective therapy than anyone else we are better at getting people better than anyone else um, but that's because we have great therapists with great tools and we're very kind of clear on how what a great kind of um, service model is. Now, what we're trying to work out is if if we can add in a kind of um, a an AI, um, can we kind of transform the way that we can get people better? Like not small changes, but big step changes in in personalized psychological care. Some huge things then in the pipeline coming through that are going to benefit hopefully lots and lots of people. Yeah, we're, we're quite quite busy. Good. <laughs> well, Charlie, thank you so much for for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on and telling your story. It's a pretty amazing story to tell, in truth. So, so thank you for that and sparing your time and keep fighting the good fight and and building the product out. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for everyone who's listened all the way through this. Awesome. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. A 
huge thank you for Charlie for coming on and sharing what I see as an amazingly inspirational story uh, from his journey into being a founder and also talking a bit more about what the future of mental health care might look like. Really, really amazing stuff. Uh, Next time, I'm delighted to be joined in what will be a Fireside with Founders first, Uh, not one, but two founders, so co-founders of Duolo, Dan Robbins and Nick Russell. I hope you can join us then.